Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. I'm going to start today called Royals. And to begin the, the series this morning, I want to talk about something that I have always found fascinating, and that is magnets. Uh, I think that's true of most little boys. If you hand them a couple of magnets and some metal, they will be entertained for a long, long time. Just playing with the magnets, I, I was always fascinated by you know, the opposite ends and how they would repel one another if you turned them the right way and watching them come together. And so I, I, I love magnets and, and I, I love, you know, how they can be useful in life and, and uh, magnets are just one of those really cool things and you probably have them on your refrigerator and uh, they're, they're useful things. They're in stuff you don't even know they're in that you need them to be in, like, like speakers and stuff. So, uh, but, but here's the thing with magnets. They, there's a demonstration that I want to give you, and it's, it's a problem with our culture when we as Christians step out into a secular culture, and here is the problem. There is a magnetic pull to become a part of the culture around us. It happens all the time. It happens very subtly, but you will find yourself being drawn to things that are not good for you. You will find yourself being drawn to things that are not of God. You will find yourself being drawn to things that will get you in trouble or cost you or hurt someone. It's just this magnetic pull in our culture that draws us to stuff that isn't good for us. It's just one of the realities of life. I want to begin today with Moses, and I want to talk about how Moses went into Egypt and he led the children of Israel out of Egypt into what would be known as the Promised Land. There's a picture there for you of a map. Um, that green section you see to the left, is um, that's Egypt. And so God tells Moses, I want you to go into Egypt and gather up my children. I want you to lead them out, and he will eventually do that. And he leads them across that, that yellow part there, the desert. And they're eventually going to make their way up into the lake that you see. In the, and that's familiar territory for you. You would recognize that as the Holy Land. And they're eventually going to settle there, and that is the land that was promised to them. It was, we, we call it the promised land. The children of Israel are God's people. However, there is a long process of, of them trying to learn how to act like God's people. You have to understand, these people were slaves. They really, the only law they had was you, you do what you're told, okay? You just do what you're told. We'll tell you when to stand up, we'll tell you when to eat, we'll tell you when to sleep. Um, you don't really have a lot of privileges. You don't you don't really have a life you work for us And if you read in the Old Testament, they you know They heaped a lot of work on those people and they were just worn out So now they're out of all of that and and God has yet to give them uh, Any laws, but eventually he's going to give them give through Moses. He's going to give the Ten Commandments. These were boundaries. They were guardrails The law reflected what God was like and what his heart was like and what was important to him so to open today, I want to look at some words from the law given to Moses by God, and I want you to listen for the magnetic pull. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17. If you want to follow along today, that's probably the, the passage we will be in the longest. I'll be in a couple of other places, but this, is, this will be kind of our anchor uh, section of Scripture, Deuteronomy 17. Uh, verse 14 says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. You feel the magnetic pull. 
We want to be like all the nations around us. We want to fit in. We want to be like them. It would be 400 years after the time of Moses before they would eventually make their way into the promised land and settle there. And they begin to desire to have kings like all of the nations around them. I'll show you this map again. This is a map of the kingdoms at the time of the kings. And you see the kingdom of Israel there. It's actually split in two, but, but don't worry about that for now. The kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah at one time were unified. And, and so they were surrounded by all of these other kingdoms. And, and the, these people were saying, you know, the Edomites below us to the south of us, they have a king. Why can't we have a king like the Edomites? And, and, the, and the Ammonites to our east, they have a king. Why can't we have a king like the Ammonites and, and like the, the Moabites? And there is a draw among these people to be like the nations around them. And they're saying, we want kings like they have. We want to be like them. And God said, okay, I'll, I'm going to let you have a king, but I have a few conditions on that. We read that in verse 15. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. So God says, first things first, God picks the king, okay? This isn't, you don't vote on the king. This isn't something where it's going to happen through ancestry. God chooses the king. And then he must be from among your fellow Israelites. It's got to be an Israelite king. And it's stated positively there, but then it turns right around and it states it in the negative. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. So God's saying, the day is coming, you're going to want a king, I'm going to give you a king, but here are the boundaries. I choose the king, not you, and that king is going to be an Israelite, it can't be a foreigner. Here's what's going on. The children of Israel are learning what it is to be distinctly Israelite in the midst of all these other nations that are around them. They must remain distinctly God's people even when surrounded by the nations that are not God's people. This is a challenge. It's a challenge not just for the Israelites, for people in faraway places. This is a challenge for us as well today. How do we remain distinctly God's people when we're often in environments that want nothing to do with God? Some of you may have the privilege to work for a, a company that is family-owned, and, and the, you know, your boss is just a great guy, and he's a family man, and people in his family kind of run it and you you kind of work with them and maybe they're christians and they they invite and encourage you to demonstrate your faith and to live out your faith talk about jesus and things like that if you are in an environment like that let me congratulate you because those are dwindling by the day there are fewer and fewer and fewer of those but you may work in an environment where god is off limits and when you work in an environment where God is off limits, what happens is there is a magnetic pull to become like the culture around you. It's just a strong pull to be different than you are supposed to be, to fit in, to look like everybody else. There is a magnetic pull to that culture. And so when you work for people like that or when you work with people like that how do you remain distinctly a person that god would be pleased with and and happy with here in terre haute we have indiana state university and you may go to indiana state and and any college you go to even you know even some of the christian colleges it's not there there's an element at some of those places that you can be drawn into a different culture there is a magnetic pull 
And there can be a magnetic pull and, be, and it begins to, to make you act and behave in ways that you know are not acceptable to God and they're, they're really you're adopting the values of the people that are around you and you're not distinctly you. You're not a distinctly a follower of Jesus. How do we resist the magnetic pull? How do we remain distinctly God's followers? When, when, when we can be in environments where there's this magnetic pull, we behave and act differently. Let's look at the map once again. This was, uh, you know, there was the first king, Saul, and then the second king was David, and then the third king was Solomon. And after Solomon, there was a civil war, and Israel is divided into two parts. To the north was the kingdom of Israel, and to the south was the kingdom of Judah. So you have this northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Between the two kingdoms, there were 43 different kings. Only nine of the 43 kings were considered good kings. Nine kings, although they were not perfect, figured out ways to resist the pull of the culture to be like the nations around them. You say, well, Brett, how do you know that they were good kings? Well, in First and Second Kings and in First and Second Chronicles, it kind of goes through the life of each king and it gives somewhat of an evaluation of their life. And often when you read the evaluation of the bad kings, what you hear is something along the lines of, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, that's a bad king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. But when it gives an evaluation of the good kings, you hear something different. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Those were the good kings. Today, I want us to just kind of stick with Moses because Moses has something to say about these kings and the boundaries that they are to recognize. And as we look at these boundaries, I want us to be aware of three directions that our heart is pulled toward. Three ways that the heart is magnetized to other ways of living. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Okay, king of Israel, rule number one, no horses. And you're like, really? It's, it's kind of an odd rule. I mean, no horses, really? I mean, God, what do you, what do you got against horses? Horses didn't hurt anybody. You would think the first rule would have something to do with domestic policy. You, you would think that, that maybe it has something to do with diplomacy. Maybe it would have something to do with the criminal justice system. Some kind of rule set up to, you know, kind of establish some order. No, the first rule is no horses. What's up with that? In the time of Moses, do you know what horses represented? In the time of Moses, do you, do you have any idea who might have had the best horses? give you a hint the Egyptians the Egyptians had the best horses in the time of Moses the Egyptians were masters at breeding and raising and training horses horses were used exclusively in their military if you had a military full of horses and chariots you had a mighty army horses gave you attacking speed horses and chariots enabled you to maneuver greatly where you needed to be to be set up to defend and to attack the positions that you needed to defend and attack. Chariots were the tanks of the day. When you read through the Old Testament and it starts talking about this king had so many men and so many chariots, what they're trying to tell you is they were a powerful army. The chariots were the tanks of the day. And God says to the kings, when you become a king, rule number one, no horses, do not multiply the horses. 
So the first pull of the heart is a pull to human power. There is a strong pull in our cult culture to human power, to do it on your own. You don't need God. God doesn't even exist. Why would you even worry about that? Do it on your own. You don't need a crutch like God. It's a pull to human power. Some of the kings got this right. David was the second king of Israel. We all know the the famous story of David and Goliath when he squares off with Goliath, this massive man. The Israelites are, are in front of their arch enemy, the Philistines, and they have drawn battle lines and, and the Philistine Goliath comes out and he begins to taunt the armies of the living God. And, you know, these Israelite soldiers see this massive, huge man and he's, he's huge and he's covered in armor and he's got a big, huge sword and big shield and, you know, just intimidating. And he's walking back and forth and he's taunting the armies and he's pointing guys out and, you know, you're a wimp and you're afraid to come fight me. Somebody come fight me. Why don't you send out your best warrior? He and I will go at it and the winner takes all. That's how they settled fights in those days sometimes. Rather than waste whole armies, they would just take one best warrior on this side, one best warrior on this side, and they would send them out and they would fight, and if your guy lost, then you were a slave. David shows up to check on his brothers. His dad has sent him with some food and has told him, go give me, I want to report on how your brothers are doing here. Take some cheeses and some meats, you know, uh, make sure that they're taken care of and, and well-fed. And so he shows up just in time to hear Goliath out there on the battle lines bragging about how strong he is and how much he's going to tear apart whoever comes out to fight against him. And David decides to go out and fight Goliath. And his weapon of choice was a sling and five stones. So he gathers up his five stones. He puts one in the sling. You know the story. He winds up. He hauls off and hits Goliath square in the noggin. And Goliath goes down. And immediately, David goes over and he cuts off the head of the Philistine. He cuts it off with his own sword, with the Philistine's own sword. And it wasn't long after that, the Israelites pick up the pursuit of the the Philistines. And they eventually defeat them. And what's going on there is that David learns at a very early age how to not lean into human power, but how to lean into divine power. David learned at a very early age that you don't need a lot of horses to win the battle. David practiced this even when he becomes the king some years later. The kingdom to the south was the the kingdom of, of Aram. And he defeats them. He defeats the Aramites. David had the opportunity to go in and and build on his arsenal to take what those guys had had and, and just add to it. And, and have all the resources of the kingdom of Aaron, but that's not what he does. In 2 Samuel, we read what he does. It says, David captured a 1,000 of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. And then listen to this sentence. He hamstrung all but 100 of the chariots there. Of the, uh, I'm sorry, of the chariot horses. He hamstrung all but 100 of the chariot horses. David had the opportunity here to increase his human power, and instead he decimated the army and he did not add great numbers to what he had. You see, David knew that you cannot rely on human power. Later in his life, David will write a song. We read about it in Psalm 20. It says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David says, We put our trust in divine power, not in human power. 
So here's a question. What does it look like for us to put our faith and our trust in divine power? What does that look like? Let's shift gears for a minute. Let's look at the New Testament for a second. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul prayed a prayer, and he said, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power. Okay, well, where's this power going to come from? Through his spirit in your inner being. The New Testament says when you understand that you are sinful and you understand that God sent his son to die on the cross for your sins and you place your faith in that, that your sins are forgiven. That God looks at you as holy. He looks at you as one who has no stain, no blemish. When you give your life to Christ, you are considered righteous. You have a right standing with God, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God sees you. And, and, and with that, when you give your life to Christ, one of the things that happens is we are told in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit of God indwells us. It comes into us, and that is the divine power through which we live and are able to live life. Things that you might have had a hard time doing before you become a Christian, now you have a different power in you to help you with those things. You think, well, you know, I can't overcome that temptation. I can't overcome that sin. The Bible says, no, when you've got the Holy Spirit of God inside you, no temptation has overtaken you. That God isn't going to give you some way to overcome it. That, that the Holy Spirit of God is going to help you in that endeavor. In another place, Paul describes the power source that we know as the fruit of the Spirit. I did a whole series on this about a year ago, the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the power that we as the followers of Jesus are to rely on. The fruit of the Spirit. You know when you need the fruit of the Spirit? When your teenage son or daughter starts to mouth off to you in that voice, you know the voice I'm talking about, right? That voice that makes you want to pinch their little head off. You know the voice? That voice that makes you want to go into your own power and muscle up. That voice that makes you want to rely on your own strength, on the, on the power of your voice, on the power of your words, on the power of the, maybe your own strength. The power of your volume, the power of your intensity, the power of your threats. And good kings know that that is not the power that you are to tap into. Back to the fruit of the Spirit for a second. Instead of trying to, 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 to instead of giving in to the urges that are so prevalent when our kids test our patience as they are wont to do, what if we tapped into the power of gentleness? Using serious and firm words. I'm not suggesting you lay down and become a doormat for your kids. Not at all. I think that there are times that you have to get in your kids' faces and you have to say hard things and you have to lay down ground rules and you have to say, look, this is how it's going to be. But it's how you say those things. Because we can say those things in a way that dominate our kids. And we can say those things in a way that can break their spirit. I've seen fathers and, and mothers do that from time to time. We can say things in a way that hurt our kids. And that's not what happens when the, the Spirit is involved. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So what does it look like if you speak those words in kindness? 
This is the power that we are to rely on, not human power. The power of the fruit of the Spirit would come in handy for a guy who has just lost his job. He's just been informed that they're going to downsize or maybe he made a mistake and he did something wrong and they've let him go and he gets in his car with the rest of his belongings that he took from his desk and he's driving away and he's got a thing in his mind and he says, you know what I need right now? I just, there's one place I need to go that'll make all this go away and it's a bar and I'm just going to drive there and I'm going to drink until I can't feel anything anymore. And he's drawn to take care of things through human power. But what if he taps into the fruit of the Spirit? And what if all of a sudden he starts living his life out of a place of joy where he knows that the Lord loves him and that that love is not contingent on whether or not he has a job? What if he tapped into the power of self-control and said, that is not the solution to the problem that I have right now? What if he tapped into that power? In every circumstance, the human heart is drawn to human power. It wants to multiply horses and chariots. But a good king is drawn to divine power. The next rule hits a little closer to home. Moses writes these instructions for the kings. And in Deuteronomy 17, he says, He must not take many wives. Some marriages struggle, and some marriages are fantastic. Even in great marriages, everything doesn't go perfectly all the time, right? It takes a lot of work for marriages to be really good marriages. And, and you can, sometimes you can work really, really hard and marriages are still not good. Um, it just takes a lot of intentionality. It takes a lot of effort for a marriage to work well. And I'm just going to say this for you just so you'll know. Don't worry about my marriage with Dee Dee. It's good. Dee Dee's a great wife. I love her. We have a great time together. But marriage takes a lot of work. And, and I'm going to say something that anybody in this room, I think, would agree with. When you're married to one person, I don't care who it is, I don't care how great they are, it's, it takes a lot of work to do that. So you start asking yourself, why? In, if you have trouble you know, just maintaining a great relationship with one, what makes us think that a bunch would be better, right? I mean, why would anybody do that? Why, why would anybody? Do, he must not take many wives. And you start thinking to yourself, why would anybody take more wives? Would that make any sense? A couple of reasons. Let's take a look at our map again. The kingdom of Edom to the south. Let's say he's got a daughter. You're the, the king of Judah and you're a little worried that the kingdom of Edom is going to rise up, muscle up, and move in on your territory, maybe try to take you over, one of the things you might do is you would go south and you might marry the daughter of, of the king. And you marry the daughter of the king and you take her back to your own kingdom in Judah. The capital city was Jerusalem. The king would live there with his wife, the daughter of the king of Edom, and eventually babies start to happen. And now the king of Edom has grandchildren that live where? In Jerusalem, in Judah. And over time, where do the husbands and wives of his grandchildren live? In Jerusalem, in Judah. His great-great-grandchildren, where do they live? In Jerusalem, in Judah. And now, if tensions arise, the king of Edom is going to be much less likely to go in guns blazing into the kingdom of Judah to wipe everybody out because now he's got family up there and he doesn't want to see them hurt. So now he's, maybe he starts to seek a, a more diplomatic solution to the problem and he doesn't just whip out his swords and go in there and try and take everybody down. 
there is a political motivation for a king to take on many wives. You just start marrying all the princesses and all the kingdoms around you. That's one reason. The second reason is, if we're totally honest, is, is a little more base and a little more understandable and, and a little more selfish. You're the king. And you look around and there's an attractive woman and you think to yourself, I want her. And so you go out and you make her your own. And you could just start going out and taking different women to be your wife because you're the king and you could easily multiply wives. But the rule here is no multiplication of wives. As Moses writes this, the motivation seems to be irrelevant to him. The consequence seems to be front and center in Moses' mind as he says this. Do you know what the consequence is? Look at the second part of verse 17. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. That's the consequence. I'll take that as an amen. That baby's back there saying, man, he's preaching good right now. Now, how in the world is the king's heart to be led astray just by taking multiple wives? There was a king in Israel named King Solomon. And let's learn a little bit about him. This comes from 1 Kings 11. It says he had 700 wives of royal birth. Okay? You think you got problems, all right? 700 wives of royal birth. Now what that means is these, that's the political side of it, okay? That's the political side. That's, you know, these are alignments. This is, this is a strategic thing. And then it says he had 300 concubines. That's, that's more for the base side of things. The guy has 1,000 wives and no brain. But anyway, and, and, and so, and wives led him astray his wives led him astray so how did his wives lead him astray we see it in verse 7 on a hill east of jerusalem solomon built a high place for chemosh the detestable god of 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 moab and for molech the detestable god of the amorites he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods so solomon marries this foreign wife brings her back to his hometown and the foreign wife brings her gods with her. What does Solomon do? He goes out on a hillside east of Jerusalem and he erects a temple. This is a, an artist's rendition of what the city of Jerusalem may have looked like during the time of the kings. And so Solomon is there. He does not want this woman to bring, he's not going to build an altar inside the, the city walls. And he's not going to build an altar close to where the temple of his God is. He knows better than to do that. So what he's going to do is he's going to go outside the city up on a hill and he's going to erect some kind of altar or temple for his wife there so that she can worship. And, and Solomon's saying, I don't want your gods inside my city um, I, I, you know, I'm going to worship my God, so I will build temples outside the city where you can worship your God. It is a magnetic pull for Solomon. It's a magnetic pull. And here's the problem with what's going on with Solomon. This is the, this is the pull of the heart to compromise. Here's the deceitful thing about compromise. Compromise often feels like obedience. When we compromise, we can convince ourselves that we're really obeying. Solomon says, I want to honor God's city, I want to honor God, I want to honor God's temple, so I don't want the temples here, so I will pay for you to have one outside the, the walls of the city. It's compromise 
but it feels like obedience. It isn't hard to envision that Solomon wanting to be a good husband might go with his wife, accompany her out to to the place where she's going to worship, and he thinks to himself, I'm not going to worship out there, but I'll just, I'll go with her. I don't want her to be alone, so I'll go with her, uh, but I'm not going to worship God. It's compromise that feels like obedience. Suddenly she begins to kneel, and he feels awkward, her kneeling, and and him not, and, you know, I don't want her to feel like she's, you know, by herself, so I'll kneel, but I'm not really going to worship. It's compromise that feels like obedience. It's not just the draw of kings of Israel who feel this draw. We have the same draw to compromise as they did. A woman is in her workplace, and she finds herself attracted to this man. She likes being in his company. She likes talking to him, and so she rearranges her schedule so that she can take her break at the same time he takes his break and she tells herself i just want to sit and talk to him i won't meet him after work i won't meet him outside of work it's compromise that feels like obedience one day they're there chatting and things are going great and he looks at her and says hey let's we should do lunch sometime and she goes to lunch with him but she says i won't i won't ever do this outside of work you know this is a work thing Um, i would never do this outside of work that's just, I wouldn't do that. It's compromise that feels like obedience. Fully, this happens to us too. You're seeing this more and more. We live in a culture with some really great things in it. The the world we live in now has great technology. It's afforded us a lot of uh, convenience, a lot of, you know, you have the power in your phone to do all kinds of things. You could right now be not even be listening to me and streaming a sermon by somebody else and think, you know, I'll just let Brett think I'm listening to him, which that's okay. Just I just want you fed somehow, some way. Okay, that's fine. But here's the thing. You can, you could, and many, many people are doing this more and more. You could just go to the lake house and watch a video on your phone and not go to church anymore. You could just, you know, decide, you know what, I'm going to sleep in this morning. I'll watch a sermon later on tonight. Uh, I'm just too tired. There's a magnetic pull that takes you away from things that are good for you. And one of the things that is good for you, even though you may not want to admit it, maybe you don't realize this, but one of the things that's good for you is meeting together to draw encouragement from one another and to be able to encourage others. I think many, many Christians don't understand the power of encouraging others. When you come to church and you encourage other people, a praxis thing happens where you begin to leave church feeling better about yourself and you feel good. And and, and when you come to church, this happens and you don't even realize it a lot of times, but you can come to church and, and on the way out the door you think, man, I'm really glad I went. I don't talk to very many people that that ever go to church, you know, I don't know that I've ever heard somebody say, I'm really sorry I went to church yesterday. No, typically, if you get yourself up and you get yourself going, you're, you're typically glad you went. But we live in a culture that makes it easy. I'll just catch it online. And again, there's nothing wrong with, we, we have our sermons online. There's nothing wrong with you doing that. We, we know that there's times, it's, it's great when you go on vacation and you, you still want to listen to the sermon, you can do that. You know, we, we try to make that as easy as we can. But there is a pull that can make it feel like I'm doing a good thing, and it's compromise that feels like obedience. A good king resists the magnetic pull toward compromise. Do not multiply horses 
That is the reliance on human power. Do not multiply wives, the pull toward compromise. And then there's a third pull that the king needs to resist. We continue reading in Deuteronomy 17. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Do not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Key word there is accumulate. About 45 minutes outside the city of Paris, France, is the Palace of Versailles. I want to show you some pictures of the Palace of Versailles. Check that out. That is gold-trimmed windows, gold-trimmed doors, gold-trimmed railings. I mean, that is magnificent. Only three kings used this palace, King Louis XIII, King Louis XIV, and King Louis XV. It is opulent. Check out the inside. Everything trimmed out in gold. Candle stands are huge, trimmed out in gold. Every bedroom, every bathroom, everything decked out in gold. When we think of royals, what we think about are, are people who gather to themselves great wealth. We think of people who accumulate gold and silver. The kings were not immune to this desire. Just before the, the first king of Israel, his name was Saul, the prophet Samuel speaks to God and he says, God, the Israelites desire to have a king like all the other nations around them have kings. And God says to Samuel, go back to them and tell them that they can have a king, but you need to give them a warning. And I want us to read this morning the warning that is given to the Israelites as they prepare to have a king. And God's saying, look, I'm going to give it to you, but here's the warning. This is, what you, you're, this is what's going to happen. I want you to listen for one phrase. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. He will take, he will take, he will take, and the king is not immune to the draw of the heart, the pull toward accumulation. The heart has a magnetic draw for more and more and more. I want to show you something. I got wrenches. These are really cool. These are ratcheting wrenches. Box in, ratcheting wrenches. I got them, I mean, there's all different sizes there. Um, I got wrenches here that my, my dad gave me. I know that they're from my dad because they have this yellow spray paint on them. He painted everything yellow in the middle there. That's how he marked them when he was working with his buddies. He always knew his tools because he had that that yellow paint on them, and he cleaned out his garage a couple of years ago. They were moving into a condo, and a lot of things had to go, and so he just started throwing tools at me, and these are some of my dad's tools. They're precious to me, and so I, I have those. I got, I got, um, I got whole sets. This is a, a, you know, I got sets that are in uh, standard version, uh, ranging in size from quarter inch all the way up to seven-eighths. I've got them, you know, I've got them in uh, standard size. 
I've got really teeny tiny wrenches that I can use if I need to. I've got, um, I've got some more wrenches here that, that my dad gave me. I've got these, these, this, these are metric right here. These ones are metric. And they, they go, you know, really tiny to the real big one too. That goes all the way up to a uh, um, 19 millimeter. Uh, so I got those. I got, uh, I'll tell you what I really like. I like channel locks, channel lock wrenches. I got those and in, in, these are cool because they're self-adjusting. I got them in two different sizes. I got, look at these, these are adjustable. I've got a big one and a little one. Those, those are awesome. I've got, I've got pliers. Uh, um, here's some more channel locks. These are awesome because they, you can move those around. Look how big I can, I can really grab a big nut with that right there. Look, this one's awesome because I push a button and this adjusts and I put it on the nut and I can, I can ratchet that up to the, just the right size and then I can turn what I need to turn. This one here, I was walking through a store one day and I saw this. It's, I've never seen a wrench like this, but it, it doesn't matter what the size is, it will latch onto it and you can turn it. This, this one even has, um, it's got some tools within it. It's even got a knife in there. I, I saw that one and had to have it. Now, I've never used that yet, but, but isn't that cool? That's awesome. Um, I've got ratcheting. This one's a special one. It's like got a, a th a, a, like three times the ratcheting power. I don't know how they do it, something with gears. But, but I got that. I've got, um, I couldn't find my other ones. I've got a whole set of vice grips. You know what vice grips are? You just lock them down, lock stuff down. Those are pretty awesome. But I'm not done. I've got, I've got ratcheting. I've got all kinds of ratcheting uh, drivers. This one's, these are on a rack. I can tell, you know, different metric and standard. All the guys are jealous right now because they're thinking, well, I want some wrenches on a rack like that. I've got those. I've got, <clears throat> I've got a really nice set of socket set and I've got this in standard and I've got this in metric. It comes in this really cool plastic thing, but better than that, <clears throat> I've even got I've even got, you know, sometimes you have a, a, a nut that's on a bolt and the bolt is really long and the ratchet won't fit on there. Not to worry. I've got the kind of ratchets that have a hole in the middle of them so you can put it over the bolt and it doesn't matter how, how long the bolt is. It'll still come off. So I've got those. I know that's making some of the guys in the room jealous right now because I, I have those. So I, I, I mean, I got ratchets, dude. I got ratchets. Now here, I have one question for you. One question. What do I do for a living? I preach. I preach. The, when we shake hands on the way out the door today, take note of how soft my hands are, okay? Just, just take note. I mean, you know, this would make sense. This would make sense if I had a, a side job, like if I was a shade tree mechanic and made a little money on the side and I needed all those wrenches. That would make sense. It would make sense if in ministry somehow I used these wrenches a lot and I could say, I could at least say, well, you know, they belong to God and God uses them and it's just amazing what God does with the wrenches. No, I, I can be walking through a store and I can see one and I can go, oh man, I don't have one like that. I, I need one like that. And I just throw that in the cart like, yeah, I, I, I need another, you know, do you know how many wrenches I, when will, when will I, how many more wrenches do I need? Do you know the answer to that? 
One more. I just need one more. I, I wish I could say that wrenches was the only place I have this problem. It's not. Dee Dee can tell you. She gets on me all the time. You should see my computer bag collection. You know the bags that you put your computer in, throw over your shoulder? Or overnight bags or backpacks. I've got backpacks I've never put clothes in. I've got backpacks that have never been used. If you're going on a big, long trip and you need a backpack, come see me. i got one I can send with you, okay? Why am I telling you all this? I would turn it and I would say, how about you? How, what do you accumulate? Don't tell me you don't accumulate things. I know you do. I, I tell you what, I tell you where I'd start with you. If I wanted to find the things that you are accumulating, do you know where I'd start? I'd go to your kitchen because in every kitchen there's one drawer. What do we call it? The junk drawer. I'd open the junk drawer and I'd go through your junk drawer and I could see everything that you collect in that junk drawer, right? So maybe it's not in the junk drawer. Let's go upstairs. Let's go to the closet. That's where it's going to be. It's going to be in the closet. I'll look through your closet. I'll find what you collect. No, not in the closet. Okay, let's go to the basement. I'll go to the basement. We'll look through your basement. I'll find the things that you collect down in the basement, right? No, maybe not in the basement. Maybe, maybe let's go out to the garage. Maybe I'll find your wrench collection in the garage. Maybe you don't collect wrenches. Maybe you collect cars. Maybe that's what you collect. You got a bunch of them in the, in, in the garage. May, no, we'll go into the attic above the garage. Let's see what's in there. No? That, that, okay, so maybe we go to the shed out back. I'm sure that if we, if we go out to the shed out back, I'll find the things that you collect over and over again. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you've got a barn. I know what it is. You've got a storage facility <laughs> that you pay extra for so that you can accumulate the things that you accumulate. And, and maybe that's where we would find it. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is a magnetic pull toward collection. There is a magnetic pull toward accumulation of things. It's true for all of us. We all struggle with the same thing. The heart is absolutely drawn toward accumulation. You know what the problem is with me getting more and more and more wrenches? You know what the problem is with that? Besides the fact that I don't use them? I do use them, but I mean, really, do I need that many wrenches? I don't think so. Write this down. Getting suffocates giving. Getting suffocates giving. And this is important because God is a giver. God loves to give. I take you back to that verse I used for the communion talk. God loves, God gives. That's what he does. He's a giver. Just this summer, I have experienced some of the great gifts of God. I've been able to play softball this summer. It's one of the joys of my life to play softball with my friends. There's guys on that team I've played with for over 25 years. We've just played more games of softball than you can imagine. We're, none of us are anywhere near as good as we used to be. doesn't matter. We just like being together. We like playing. Whether we're kicking somebody's tail or getting our tail kicked, at the end of the day, I was with my boys, and it was fun. And I love that. And it's a gift of God that I've been able to enjoy softball. Sunshine, rain, both of those. I've enjoyed both of those this summer. Got to go on a vacation back in June to see, be with a good friend of mine and spend two or three days on the beach. Got to see the ocean. Got to enjoy the sunshine. Got to see the beach. Got to see some fish. Eat some really good food. Gifts of God. Wonderful gifts of God. Music. Just went to the, the music festival. Enjoyed some really good music. Was with family. Had a really good time. 
Got to go to a baseball game last week with my best friend and my wife and his, his wife, and we had a great time. I love watching baseball. Friendships and family, there's so many gifts of God. I want to show you one more gift of God. God loves to give. And a good king is to have a heart like God's heart. And the more we get and get and get, the less we are inclined to give. Moses warns the kings, do not multiply horses, resist the human power, the draw to human power. Do not multiply wives, resist the the draw to compromise. Do not accumulate silver and gold, resist the draw to accumulate. And a very legitimate question to ask right now is, how? How in the world are we supposed to resist this magnetic pull in our culture? How do we do it? Let me show you. Moses keeps writing, he says in Deuteronomy, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priest. So king, when you take the throne, you get the Levitical priest to come in there, you have him read the law to you. You make sure he brings the books in, he's going to read the law to you. You write those down and you meditate on those. You're going to hear it, you're going to see it, you're going to feel it. You will know God's law thoroughly. That is what the king was to do, but it doesn't stop there. Not only is he to write a copy, it says, it is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life. King, whether you're on the throne for four months or 40 years, you are to continually review the law of the Lord your God. And the reason you review it, the second part of verse 19, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of his law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. Your royal highness, you are no better than anybody else and do not turn from the law to the right or to the left. The king of Israel, when it comes to God's law, is to know it thoroughly, to review it regularly, and to follow it rigorously. That is what the king is supposed to do. And we as royals want to have the heart of God. We are to have the heart of God. So how do we do this? How do we resist these things? How do we get past this magnetic pull? Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to look at the good kings, and we're going to see the things that they did well, and there's also some things that they didn't do very well. We're going to learn from some of their mistakes. But hopefully at the end of the series, we will not be in such a, so inclined to be trapped by that magnetic pull as we are today. Let's pray together. Father, I give you thanks for your gifts. I give you thanks for the love that you have for us, a love that is overpowering, a love that is so much stronger than anything we've ever encountered before, a love that can take us out of the pit and set us up on the hill and and we can walk in the light of your love. What a great gift you have given to us. We are forgiven and we are free. And Father, now you call us to live like royals to not collect horses, which means we're going to lean into human power, to not uh, accumulate wives, which means we're, 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 we're leaning into compromise, to not accumulate silver and gold, which just leads us to want more and more and more. Father, help us 
to see your law as a good thing. Help us to see you as one who helps us and leads us and guides us. Father, we worship you, tell you that we love you. We want to be like you. In our days, we look nothing like you. But still you are compassionate, still you are faithful, still you, you relentlessly pursue our heart. And God, we are so grateful that you never give up on us. We simply tell you we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.